welcome to this podcast and videocast. I'm Silky Carlo, the director of Big Brother Watch. Big Brother Watch is a UK civil liberties campaign group fighting for a free future. We're a fiercely independent, non-partisan and non-profit group who work to roll back the surveillance state, defend free speech and protect rights at a time of huge change. Our work relies on the generosity of people like you who care about civil liberties in the UK. If you can support us, please do visit bigbrotherwatch.org.uk forward slash donate to support this podcast and our work. Welcome to our podcast and video cast. I'm Silky Carlo from Big Brother Watch. And for those of you who don't know, Big Brother Watch is a UK civil liberties organisation working to protect privacy, protect freedom of expression and uh, all of our rights in this extraordinary time in, in particular uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. And in this episode, we're going to focus on the impact of the pandemic on freedom of expression. And I'm delighted to be joined by Matthew Lesh and Rachel Jolly. And uh, Matthew, could you introduce yourselves, yourself and tell us about uh, ASI? Sure. So my name is Matthew Lesh. I'm the head of research at the Adam Smith Institute. Uh, we are a free market neoliberal uh, think tank. So we explore ideas um, that we hope bring society uh, more freedom and more prosperity. Thanks. And Rachel? Um, so I'm Rachel Jolly. I'm the editor-in-chief of Index on Censorship. Um, we are a global, small global organisation. We work across the world and we look particularly at freedom of expression and censorship issues. We are a publisher and a campaigner on specific issues. Um, so we've, we publish a quarterly magazine and the, currently we're working on a mapping project looking at attacks on media freedom during the COVID-19 pandemic. Incredible, such important work. And we've been so grateful to work with uh, both the Adam Smith Institute and Index on Censorship, as well as other groups um, in relation to freedom of expression and coronavirus. We sent some letters to social media companies, which you can find on the emergency powers page on bigbrotherwatch.org.uk. Um, which I'm just looking for now, here they are, because we sent letters to uh, Facebook, WhatsApp, YouTube, and Twitter. And this is really where, where I want to start off. Um, there has been, I think we would agree, relatively little public discussion on freedom of expression in particular and how it's being impacted in the current circumstances, despite huge amounts of discussion about the other areas where rights are being impacted. Um, and each of the, the organisations has very rapidly changed their rules um, to, to further limit uh, certain posts in relation to coronavirus. And I think a lot of that is well intended and it's intended to bat out uh, misinformation and information that might harm people ultimately. It's this terminology of harm that that's resurfacing is one that our groups have grappled with because the government has been has been trying to legislate around quote unquote harmful communications online without actually defining what harmful means. Um, 
And so I thought it would be a, a good starting point for us to, to try to explain to people how the rules have changed and what that means. Um, so if we look at, um, maybe we should start with Twitter. Um, and I'm just going to start with a, a couple of points about Twitter's new policies and please jump in for things that I miss. Um, but the new Twitter policy effectively says that um, information on the platforms which deny the advice of local health authorities or could influence people to go against the advice of local health authorities or that could cause social unrest. These are just a few examples of the kind of information that is now going to be banned. Um, and need to be removed on Twitter. Rachel, what, what's your thoughts about this new policy? I think our concern, and it relates to what's happening with other companies, is also is around overreaction, um, temporary nature of such policies, and also how the social media companies are being put under a lot of pressure from governments to take um, a more um, draconian position so um, and also by parts of the public so they I'm sure they feel like they're being pushed and pulled in different ways um, but it, it's very typical of a period of um, you know uh, of a crisis period where um, governments try and reduce what people are allowed to say and it, you know I suppose the obvious parallel is wartime isn't it so we are constantly calling for um, changes to be proportional, um, to be well thought out, and to be temporary. That you know, if if checks are brought in, let's look at these as periods of exceptional exceptional times, and um, take account of the fact that these shouldn't um, be put into place for um, the long term. Mm. And I mean, even during this period now, some of those policies, uh, that the policies that require, they, they appear to require adherence to lo local health authorities, even global health authorities, um, at a time when people's lives and liberties are at stake. And it seems to me that there's something distinctly political about that, because there's no kind of scientific determinism behind how precisely what what kind of advice public should be given and as we've seen in the UK I know um, there are protests that have already been attempted protests that are planned whether in relation to coronavirus or, or other things uh, there have been protests in Germany and in other countries um, mm. Matthew are you worried about how the policies might impact people's ability to protest Look, I, I'm worried about it in terms of people's ability to protest, but I think there's there's a broader story going on here, which is we don't have a lot of discussion about free speech issues during this crisis. It's not um, necessarily something at the forefront, and that's kind of the opportunity where these kind of authoritarian um, actions get taken in 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 the silence of it all. Um, we're seeing our governments putting pressure. I'm sure we'll talk about this a bit more onto social media companies to remove this content. Now, I think this is this is following some very interesting and and the usual kind of characteristics of censorship, which is um, 
we, we're not quite clear what is lawful and what is unlawful speech. And this is part of the issue with um, even the government's broader agenda about online harms, which is quite a dangerous agenda because anything can be theoretically defined as harmful. And once you define it so broadly, um, it becomes quite problematic. So therefore, these social media companies have to depend on an authority source, some, some kind of you know, scientific truth body. Now, that's often um, in this crisis, the companies are choosing the World Health Organization. Now, the WHO uh, is a, a great organization in many respects, but doesn't have a particularly good track record during this crisis when it comes um, to necessarily knowing what is going on in the world. I mean, this is the same organization that in January informed us that local transmission and, and human-to-human transmission was very unlikely. Um, this is the organization which has consistently advised against mask wearing, despite um, many governments, including now the UK government, advising in favor of mask coverings. Um, this is the same organization that refuses to acknowledge the existence of Taiwan, uh, that says China's authoritarianism is a model for the world to follow. Um, as well as you know, this kind of broader sense of uncertainty about the virus itself. There's a lot we still don't know. Um, it does look like the virus started in uh, uh, the Wuhan um, wet markets, but we don't know that with any certainty. And there is definitely uh, some questions about what research is going on in the Wuhan labs. Now, these are complex questions that no authority figure necessarily has a certain answer to. And if they do have an answer to, those answers often change. Just in the last few days on masks, the UK government's position has changed. Public Health England are now recommending wearing a face coverings because they do believe there is some benefit there. So I, the problem with social media companies more fundamentally with deciding that what they're no longer going to try to focus on censoring is, uh, let's say, offensive or harmful, harmful speech when it impacts kind of an individual. But even now they're extending that um, concept to trying to censor specific uh, ideas, not just something that, you know, offends me as an individual or, you know, is racist, sexist, or homophobic or whatever else, but is, is very much focused on trying to remove disinformation, more or less, or things they perceive to be disinformation. Um, it, it creates really terrible precedents uh, for, for online speech censorship. And I worry that they're not going to go away when this crisis is over. Now that social media companies have decided that they're in the truth business and that they're going to use, you know, authority figures to define what is that, that so-called truth, when we all know the truth is often contested, um, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. And I think it's quite a frightening world we're now entering into when it comes to online censorship. I think, sorry, go ahead, Rachel. I was just going to pick up on uh, Matthew's point about the, the definition of harm. I mean, if we want to look at internationally, um, international examples, look what's happening in, in places like Hungary and Serbia, where mm. journalists are being told that they're not allowed to cover stories. So you've got a situation where a Serbian journalist was arrested covering a story about a hospital not having enough um, PPE um, because she um, quoted unofficial sources. Now, that story turned out to be very valid and very important. And of course, the public should know about that. But, um, you know, when the government or when any government starts defining things uh, very loosely like this, it, it, can, it can be very dangerous and, I you know, and cover up things that the public really should know. Yeah, and of course, then, then the questions become for social media companies, um, which governments are you basing what you censor on? Uh, are you choosing to follow Serbia's uh, declarations or Brazil's or Turkey's or Russia's or, or the US's or the UK's? There's, there's, no, there's no single, you know, internationally approved sense of truth in this, in this crisis. So when the social media companies start deciding that they're going to use authority figures, um, there, there becomes fundamental questions about which authority figures they're using. And then that speaks to this broader issue of free speech is when you, when you start censoring speech that is um, disliked by authorities, uh, you end up very much stopping the kind of debate um, that we, we expect in a free society. 
That's precisely my concern. And, and my concern is that the way in which the social media companies are now aligning their policies with local authorities in an area where facts and decisions and policies and guidance are constantly changing is, is, is basically for the platforms to be aligning themselves with the authorities, almost like an extra, uh, you know, government agency. There are things that we can say in the, in the UK and things that we can't say in the UK on Twitter that presumably would be completely fine to say in Sweden because they've taken a completely different approach. Um, both governments will claim that the approach is just merely following the science, but of, of course there's really no such thing. All of the decisions are political and that's why they require free and open debate. And it does seem that the, I, I, and I understand, I think Matthew, what you were getting at about, um, the need for the, so the social media companies need to look to a, an external authority. Um, and in this case, it's becoming more and more centralized. And so now you, they're looking to a global authority. They're looking to mm. World Health Organization, um, which is not, uh, uh, as you alluded to, not an entirely apolitical body. Um, and it's almost like searching for a, a kind of godlike figure in a time of panic, that there's this one central body that must have all of the answers. Uh, and as you've pointed out, that you know, sometimes they change and they, and they don't. But what I really feel is, and this is, it's, it's bloody exhausting to keep rehearsing the same arguments about freedom of expression and where the limits actually lie. But of course, normally you just look to the law what does the law say about what yeah. we can and can't say? Mm. Um, because these are well, these are long established principles that, that protect people and, and, you know, they've been made under human rights law. Um, they're compatible with human rights law. Um, but what we're seeing is a real willingness and, and lots of people, and I have to say a lot of rights groups as well, turning a blind eye to the fact that now lots of information is being censored that's, lawful speech and with these new policies the social media companies are directly aiming at lawful speech that's quite chilling isn't it yeah we and we've seen you know all sorts of we've seen examples already of vital information being taken down um which you know is really worrying but it's just probably a sign of what could happen so you don't want to be handing over that decision to basically machines. As we know, a lot of these decisions will be made by AI and the decision-making process will not be very robust and can go wrong in all sorts of ways. So there's lots of reasons why this can be very, very difficult and very dangerous. What's the worst examples of that that, that, that either of you have seen of um, information that should have been available on social media platforms being, being taken down under these new policies? I think early on in the crisis, Facebook, and I think they've acknowledged this, uh, started removing swathes of content using their automated system. And it was partly because um, as the lockdown began, they had fewer moderators and therefore they, they turned up the dial on misinformation in their machine learning or you know, AI-based systems. And it turns out those systems are, are heavily imperfect. Um, so they were deleting or I'm hiding a lot of posts with, you know, legitimate, um, completely, you know, almost universally accepted public health information. Um, we've seen Facebook ban mask advertisements, I believe, during the crisis, um, which is obviously quite questionable. Um, at the same time, I think this just feeds into this 
um, like trap that the social media companies have now walked themselves into. They, in, in fairness, this, this started long before the crisis, which is that they've decided um, that, as you were saying, that they're no longer going to just try to deal with illicit content but they're going to also try to deal with a whole bunch of other things as well. And there's no point at which you stop when you decide that you are speech sensors um, in order to create a platform of some description. So I think as private companies, they're, they're perfectly entitled to decide what isn't, isn't on their platform. But I think they've set themselves up for a lot of demands from government to remove content once they start accepting that they're going to remove legal speech, but that is harmful. Um, and then they've set themselves all, also up and in many cases been willing to accept new regulatory regimes that are they're on the way from governments because, you know, more or less, they're just kind of doing it themselves anyway. So it's, it's eventually going to have um, some kind of state authority behind this, this um, the content they remove. And then effectively, um, the, the, the limits of speech have, have been substantially narrowed in when this is all done. Um, because the social media companies will in some way be legally mandated to remove things that are in their policies potentially under under the online harms framework the government the UK government's proposing so we're, we're walking into a, a very dangerous situation here where speech you know which might in the short run people could say you know it, there is some terrible conspiracy theories about 5g causing COVID-19 and we need to really deal with those and that, that kind of thing is used as an excuse but I don't think the implications of this are very well thought through in terms of what, what governments are asking social media companies to do. And quite frankly, what we don't even know the governments are asking social media companies to do, both democratic and undemocratic com companies. Yeah, so I, completely, I completely agree. And um, let's talk about government's role in this because these decisions, as I understand it, have not been made by the social media companies purely off their own backs, but they are coming under significant pressure from governments. We have just a UK focus, so I can only really talk about what's going on here. But we know um, simply from a, a government press release that a rapid response unit has been set up. Um, and a similar thing was, was set up before uh, by, by number 10 of the cabinet office. This, this time it's, it's don't, this unit operates specifically in relation to what they call harmful online narratives around coronavirus. Um, and it's working with a sub another unit uh, called the counter disinformation cell. Um, we, there's very little public information about these units and cells and precisely what they're doing, but um, what, what, what they'd say, at least they're doing in their, in their, press releases is basically pressuring social media companies to take down um, what they call harmful content, which is to completely swerve the routes by which a public authority should go down to um, go through the appropriate tests in, in law to, to, mm. to ascertain whether something is, uh, someone has the right to to say something or not and that's what what we're really talking about if we accept the, these companies they're not publishers so we're you know it's, it's easy to pitch um government against big tech but really this is government against individuals because we are supposed to be able to more or less post freely on these platforms um rachel do you, do you know anything more about these government cells and units popping up in, i mean in uh, again if you look at an I just wanted to say, um, I wanted just to go somewhere else first and I'll come back to that. But I think we should acknowledge that this is all happening in, a, in an extreme climate with, with various other actions going on around it. So we're seeing press conferences where um, government ministers don't want to take questions. Um, obviously, you know, that seems to be a global trend right now. Um, 
where ministers or le national leaders just would prefer that no questions were asked that, that, um, that are critical in any way. I mean, just obviously this week we've seen Trump walk out of a press conference because he didn't like the question that the, the journalist was asking. Um, and if you're looking for more context of where this can sort of end up, um, in Malaysia, a journalist um, has been charged over the post, over some posts she made to her Facebook account, a warning about the arrival of a cruise ship um, after the outbreak. And she's been charged under the uh, Malaysian Penal Code, which, which is, quote, statements conducting to public mischief. And, you know, ultimately she could end up, or she faces up to six years in prison. It, um, um, under this um, under this charge, you know, and all of this is adding up to a real the global uh, sort of a global crisis of expression. I think where um, our rights to um, speak and uh, raise criticism, argue are are being pressed by all sorts of methods in all sorts of ways. Yeah, I think that's that's a very important point. Um, in in the UK's case, it's a little more subtle which is, um, as, as Silky was saying, we have the government developing these kind of Orwellian-sounding, you know, rapid response units and disinformation units. Um, we, we should always remember that, that state diktats um, act in a similar way to actual laws and regulation, um, albeit without any kind of democratic accountability. Um, the implicit uh, threat when the government starts ordering businesses around is that it, that will be followed very closely by actual regulation and actual laws and punishment if they do not comply. Um, in this case, we've already got the online harms um, regime on the table. Um, and I think the companies, and this is why I'm a little bit sympathetic to the companies, they know if they, they don't do what they're told now, then they could expect in the future in this, this forthcoming regime, the likes of fines or jail time for their executives. Um, so, Right now, that they, they feel like they have to prove their censorship and prove their willingness to work with the government um, in order to avoid an even more censorious future. Uh, and I, I, I really am just extremely disappointed that this can all go on um, in a country like the United Kingdom, a country with you know, a history of people fighting for rights and liberties without any kind of real accountability or any real questioning um, about what what these what these units are doing and these interactions i mean if if the government's going to ask the social media companies to do something on our behalf they should at the very least tell us what they're asking and um, we're told that, that they're dealing with dozens of pieces of misinformation every week what are those dozens of pe mm. uh, pieces of misinformation um if they if they want to combat misinformation they should do it in 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 the public not in private um and and through encouragement not through force I completely agree. But and by the way, um, we have the, the, the three of us and uh, I think one other organization, uh, Open Rights Group, we, we have sent a letter to um, the relevant government department asking for more clarity about this and asking precisely what that information is um, and how these units are operating and also can they engage with us so that we can have that transparency and see exactly what's going on and maybe give some advice. Um, but can I, would, can I and also, I mean, I think we should acknowledge that this is really not being debated in, in Parliament. You know, it's not getting the light of uh, parliamentary scrutiny. So a lot of these kind of things are just happening 
without um, other MPs, the opposition parties, etc., being allowed to um, input into these decisions. If anything, the opposite. In fact, there have been certain yeah. um, MPs in Parliament pushing on the well, social media companies and 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 questioning, you know, the, the lack of willingness to remove content. So um, the the conspiracy goes uh, even further than just the government, but into Parliament at times. And you're right; there there doesn't seem to be much opposition to it. I think it's it's genuinely hard for politicians to. Um, stick out their neck during a time of crisis to say, you know what, even crazy ideas should be able to be expressed, even ones that are, you know, quote unquote dangerous. I mean, the, the real danger of this information isn't particularly ever well justified. It's just assumed that putting out this information or people expressing certain ideas is dangerous. And I think that comes from a, a fundamentally flawed um, conceptualization of humans. You know, this, this is basically the idea that if you know, somebody hears a crazy idea online, then they're suddenly going to be persuaded by it. Um, in fact, when you try to censor these ideas, it has that precise effect sometimes. Um, it's not like when you remove um, David Icke's uh, YouTube um, channel is now has been done by Google that his ideas suddenly disappear. Um, conspiracy theorists really enjoy being censored uh, because it provides justification or legitimacy that the ideas they're expressing are in some ways naughty or or have some some truth to them that the governments want to hide. So I don't think the government's thinking through very well. You know what what is the first principle here? What are we trying to achieve here? What, what is the implications of trying to censor speech? Or is there any really any justification to start censoring the speech in the first place? Especially considering the fact that it is ultimately legal speech um you may and i absolutely do find this person like david Icke, absolutely gross and disgusting that doesn't mean that he shouldn't be able to express his ideas just like anyone else in a civilized free society well, well i think the, the discussion of his ideas also is, is a way of discrediting them right of if they're completely stupid uh which they often are um then actually it's worth um, people realizing that rather than thinking that it's something exciting that they don't, um, you know, they're not allowed to hear about. Sunshine is the best disinfectant. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think where, where people become more alarmed, especially if they're attracted to, um, you know, discredited ideas that are, that are disseminated, that people then become rightfully alarmed that there is this accumulation of power. Um, from governments and big tech companies in then doing precisely this kind of censorship, um, which, which seems to benefit no one. But coming back to the point about the lack of discussion and alarm that there's been about this, and th this is why I'm so glad to be having this conversation with you guys now and glad that we've sent the letters that we've done and hopefully we'll take further action. But we can we just discuss the fact that there... The online censorship has not been very widely discussed by lots of rights groups and NGOs. Um, and the people who are being censored um, have been left adrift somewhat. And all of the um, political conversation in this space, uh, in Parliament, um, and also amongst many uh, civil society groups tends to be around misinformation and and it always seems that anyone who's tasked with talking about freedom of, ex of expression is more likely to talk about misinformation and the scourge of disinformation and getting rid of it and, and all the rest of it um, than they are about the dangers of censorship why is that It, it almost feels like freedom of expression as a concept has, um, has sort of fallen out of favour in some way, doesn't it? 
where people are just don't engage with it as an idea. Um, I do find that's different in countries where um, in living memory, people have experience of say living in, under a dictatorship. So if you have, um, you happen to be talking to Spanish people who remember what it was like living under Franco or Germans who remember what it was like with the Stasi, it, you know, that, that kind of living memory um, really makes a difference to people's commitment to the idea and the concept and why it's important. But I've, I feel like oftentimes in, in countries which haven't got that kind of immediate massive experience of something uh, as dreadful as that, um, people are willing to put a, aside their rights and freedoms much more easily. Yeah, I think there's some specific, uh, even shorter term, or I should say short to medium term by now, um, reasons for this. And it, I think it's more or less what we've seen around the likes of Donald Trump's election and Brexit, which is that a, a certain class of um, human rights activists have been so viciously opposed um, to both of those democratic results. They have come to the conclusion, um, and, and this is you know very much the, the popular um, media narrative in this field that the only reason why Donald Trump was elected or that the Brexit um, happened was because people were misinformed and therefore we, we must deal with this um, fake news and, and misinformation. And it's actually quite a condescending idea to begin with um, that people were tricked into voting for this. Um, and and you, might, you might think that they were tricked into voting for this, but just the, the idea that um, what we need to do is just hide information from people and then they'll vote politically the way we want them to vote um, is just, just absolute and complete and total nonsense. Um, you, you need to win in the, the contest of ideas if you're going to win people's support at elections and, and referendums and whatever else. And if you're not willing to do that, I think it's quite lazy um, and, and quite a lazy way to operate to then focus on this disinformation and, and fake news agenda, which I think is really very much derived as a response to populism um, and those populist moves. But in fact, probably actually ultimately is just going to further populism as you were getting uh, hinting at earlier, Silky, um, the people who are going to benefit in a situation where we're undermining institution, where we're undermining institutions because those institutions are seeking to censor people's ideas are going to be the, the weirdos and the whack jobs who are going to present the most crazy extreme alternatives um, aren't going to be doing that on the mainstream social media sites. They're going to do that in much darker parts of the internet or they're going to do that in rallies in public where it's still, of course, legal to do so and not restricted without anyone actually contesting them, without anyone presenting ideas. And then they'll use the fact that they're being censored online for, as part of their political narrative that the that authority and authorities and these international tech companies, which are you know, left-wing or whatever, are coming after them and censoring them. Um, so in many ways, I think it's ca quite counterproductive kind of activity that's that's being done um, because people have a perception of basically uh, that it's right to try to limit information. I think also, and to, just to add a small point on that, is there has been a really destructive um, idea that by being on a panel uh, with someone uh, whose whose views might be uh, you know racist or sexist or, or you know in some other way uh, offensive to some other people that. Somehow you condone their ideas. So the idea of just being on a panel with somebody um, becomes something that, uh, you know, lots of people are like, I can't be on a panel with X because I disagree with their views, as if that by somehow being on the panel and debating with them is a bad thing, you know, that you're somehow validating their views. And I think that's such a dangerous idea because, you know, I, I, you see it um, often in, in politics, you know, um, 
with uh, Sadiq Khan during the American election, I noticed that um, he was being accused of being on panels with people, and like so, then somehow he was therefore tainted by their ideas. So, you know, so often you hear these these this being held up as, um, you know, isn't it terrible that person was seen on the panel with such and such? We seem to have lost the idea that you know you can engage in debate with people without agreeing with them. In fact, you can viciously, you know, dangerously, uh, dangerously, you know, you can disagree with them strongly. But, and, and in fact, wouldn't that be better uh, as a way of engaging with those ideas? But uh, I don't know why we've lost this idea that somehow being in a room with someone that you disagree with is somehow uh, a terrifying idea. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like, um, the most responsible thing that you can do in response to information that's not factual or is going to have some kind of negative effect is to engage with it and to engage respectfully with the people who put it out as well. Uh, but this is a completely unaccepted idea right now, particularly in the context of the pandemic. But I completely agree with, with both of your analyses that we're suffering from both complacency about our right to freedom of expression. Um, on the one hand and also a panic about misinformation and disinformation and this is quite anti-populist view that you can of, of that kind of suggests there's contagion um, with information and also with speakers or people that put out information so you know if an ordinary person goes online and they see something that says you know 5g is going to give you coronavirus or something that they are then tainted and they have like caught that information virus and it's going to have a bad effect um yeah we see this all the time with metrics about you know how mm. much disinformation posts someone see there's it's never actually put in any kind of proportion you know we all see thousands of posts every day that doesn't mean you know we're suddenly persuaded by it or, or the old joke is you know i, I learned about uh you know germany uh, invading Poland in, in 1939. That doesn't mean I'm about to, you know, go fight in the war or something in, for the Reich. I mean, just learning about information or doesn't necessarily spur action, especially if you can counter that information successfully in public debate or, or explain why that is not particularly true or not a particularly good idea. This brings me perfectly to uh, something that happened early this week with Michael Gove's bookshelf. <laughs> so he had a David Irving book on his bookshelf, who's a notorious Holocaust denier. And this is one of the most difficult areas of freedom of expression. But I thought what was really interesting was that so many people came out in Michael Gove's defense, pointing out the fact that he had contested um, Holocaust uh, denial and some of the some of Irving's um, pretty gross ideas and defending the idea that you can have whatever you want on your bookshelf and that having something on your bookshelf doesn't necessarily mean that you adhere to all of the ideas that are in that book and we shouldn't be policing other people's bookshelves. Um, I wonder what you guys think about that. I mean personally I was absolutely stunned by the amount of people who and even policymakers who are actively pushing the online harms censorship and the idea that if you even see fleeting information online let alone buy it keep it in your house on public display but just by seeing information online that you 
therefore will you know it has a dangerous impact on you and so it has to be censored and it shouldn't be allowed and of oh, facebook's new policy of giving people a tap on the shoulder as well if you've engaged with any of this um prohibited coronavirus content you're going to get a notification giving you some world health organization information to kind of correct your bad views um re-education camps and yeah. <laughs> facebook's re-education efforts um did you detect any, have I read this wrong, or did you detect any contradiction in this vehement defence of Michael Gove's bookshelf compared to uh, pro-online censorship? Well, I was quite pleased to see some people coming out and saying, you know, frankly, Michael Gove can read what he wants, um, or whoever can read what they want, because actually I think we should have more of those discussions and actually saying, yeah, actually, it's really good to read a variety of views and you, you just not just read the things that you already agree with. Of course, you know, I would say that. But um, I was really happy to see at least some people having that debate, which is, uh, you know, is much needed. Um, however, there was a lot of people, as you say, saying the opposite. And it does, it is extremely worrying, isn't it, when you see people kind of condemning people for reading a book. I mean, really, is that really where you want to put yourself? So you're suggesting that knowledge Gaining knowledge is a bad thing. I mean, how could you even potentially criticize um, somebody's thinking if you don't know what it is? I mean, the whole idea of, of banning people from reading books uh, because you disagree with the views in the book. I mean, it's just stupidity gone mad, isn't it? It, it was absolutely um, crazy kind of, uh, what, you know, 24 hours on Twitter. It's, it's, quite, it's quite clearly obvious to a lot of people that you are allowed to um, own books with which you disagree. It is worth noting that the particular book that um, Michael Gove um, owned was, was basically um, his, uh, the, the German side's view of the rise of Hitler or the Nazi side's view of the rise of Hitler. And, and that in itself is a, is a historical document, if you're going to have a good understanding of the, the pre-war period, um, you should probably read um, as, as widely and broadly on that as possible. What though I felt in particular, just going back to the, the genesis of your question, um, talking about w why did we see this relatively high defense of free speech? I think it probably in some quarters just felt like a, a return of the traditional kind of culture war debates. I mean, you know, for so long during Corona, we're in this weird universe with this completely different um, national discussion that, that doesn't seem to as necessarily well fit into the usual confines of, you know, left, right, or Brexit remain, I thought, or whatever else it may be, I felt like this very much activated a lot of the kind of cultural war um, stuff that can sometimes go on. So, you know, you had Owen Jones saying, you know, those terrible fascist Tories, and then you had Tories going, no free, no free speech, you know, they're right to say it. It felt like it was a, a bit of a return in those periods for everyone's um, usual debating sides in these kind of arguments. Yeah, I'm almost missing those days, simpler times. Simpler times yeah. <laughs> um, on, since we've been talking about the, the role of the World Health Organization in some of this censorship, I just wanted to quickly flag a, a relatively new development, which is a partnership between the World Health Organization, the UK government and the BBC. Um, Matthew, I think you've had a look at this. What are your, can you just explain a little bit more about this? Sure. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of information as of yet. Um, there was a typical me, of course, there was a media release uh, put out by the World Health Organization saying that they're working with UK government at number 10 um, in collaboration with B the BBC 
uh, world service and, and world news in order to um, put out correct information about coronavirus um, from either your, you know, check your local authorities or, or check the WHO. Um, and again, I think this just speaks to this broader challenge we now face, which is um, the, the dependence in, in, on authority figures during a time of crisis and not necessarily that um, those authority figures are informing us correctly, um, but instead trying to close up the what is acceptable in terms of debate. Um, as a fundamental principle, I think it's worth remembering that um, a virus cannot hear what we say. You know, we may be, you know, quote unquote, at war with this this disease, but this is not like a war where secrecy is a virtue, where we need to hide information from the enemy soldiers because they might, you know, know our strategy of attack. In fact, the opposite is true here. Um, we need to shine a light on on ideas in order to combat this virus. Um, and and we haven't said it yet, but we can't forget that this virus ultimately began. Um, in a place that is heavily censored. It began with the Chinese government censoring whistleblowers who were trying to raise alarm about this virus. Um, people, people say, you know, free speech, very theoretical concept, Matthew. It doesn't really matter too much. Well, free speech in this case has had life and death consequences. When we censor ideas, we can no longer have the debates we need to have. We can no longer have access to the information we need to have in order to defend ourselves and, and defend society. And if only, if only China was a free society, if only um, those doctors were able to warn the world about this forthcoming virus in late December to the point where we knew to start screening passengers coming in from China. We knew that potentially um, we needed to prepare for this virus by ordering PPE and protecting care homes and, and whatever else. We'd lost that crucial time. Millions of people left Wuhan and left China and this virus spread across the world precisely because the ideas were censored. And there are life and death decisions being made now with the policies that our government and other governments are making um, that therefore, you know, they're, they're highly political decisions and decisions that we should all have a, a say on. And I think bringing us back full circle, the worrying thing about these kinds of partnerships between broadcasters, World Health Organization and the government, having the government's hand in what people are able and are not able to say or report at a time when they're, they're asking for extraordinary adherence to major restrictions that have an impact on our lives, uh, on people's ability to seek healthcare, on people's mental health and well-being, and all sorts of other things. Uh, it's worrying. And in, in particular, it's worrying. This has even been said quite explicitly by uh, YouTube and Facebook, and it's certainly clear in Twitter's rules, is that if people try to organise protests in these circumstances, we probably won't be allowed. That's probably going to be banned content. And that is an absolutely, really, I think, terrifying place for the social media companies to, to, to put themselves. You know, And it's just frankly absurd as well, the idea that we can go to garden centres, you can go and work on a construction site, you can go and play golf, but you can't express dissent against your own government uh, and you can't use social media platforms to do that that just can't be right i think um anything that is going to restrict journalists from reporting accurately um in this period is is very worrying and we need you know we need journalists to be holding government the government in this country to account but governments in every country to account in this period and it really is a time where there should be uh, the strongest um, uh, bits of investigative journalism and the best kind of reporting. So um, I think we have seen some of that and I'm, 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 I'm glad to see that, but 
you know, we have to be really wary of um, media freedom being restricted in a variety of ways. And to finish on that really important point, Rachel, um, what, what do you think about the health of the UK media at the moment and the kind of position that they're in to um, be telling the stories and giving us the information that we need in the UK right now? I think it's actually quite a scary moment for the media. I mean, I know lots of journalists who are on furlough because their companies um, can't afford to keep paying them. Obviously, we've seen a massive downturn in advertising, which is, is really important for keeping media companies going, whether that's television or newspapers. So, of course, the number of journalists actually working has gone down dramatically during this period, you know, both at local level and national level. Um, and we should be really worried about how much local news reporting we're getting right now, because I think uh, we really need that information um, to be there for us right now. And everybody, I think, is looking to find out information for what's going on in their locality, what's allowed, what's open, you know, really basic things like where they can find food. And if that kind of journalism is not there, will it ever recover? Um, and that's not just in the UK, but in other countries as well. So the media model and the finance for that model is really threatened by this. And um, that's very worrying. On the other hand, I think we have seen some really strong pieces of journalism and um, heard some very strong interviews, you know, really holding government and, and the UK government, um, for instance, up to account. So um, I think we're seeing worrying threats to the media and its, and its livelihood, and we have to worry about that. But, you know, I think this is a time for good journalism to show why it's important and why that is important for any democracy to, you know, to have, defend the right for um, media freedom to exist, I think. Absolutely. And um, when we compiled our, our first monthly emergency powers and civil liberties report, it was really interesting the amount, um, the amount to which we really relied on local reporting to find out how each police force is behaving, people even who have been wrongly convicted. Um, we were able to, to get justice for some people by exposing these stories, which we initially were finding in local press reports, uh, by and large. So it's been a really, really vital resource for us um, in, in a way that we, we haven't relied on local press before. Um, but a way to, as you say, kind of shine a light on and, and see what's happening at a, at a local level. Um, I completely agree with that. Well, um, I want to thank you both so much for uh, sharing your views and analysis in this podcast videocast and also for all of the work that you do. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Big Brother Watch podcast. Our work completely relies on the generosity of people like you who care about civil liberties. You can help make our work stronger by supporting us at bigbrotherwatch.org.uk forward slash donate.